The epistle reading this morning is from Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, and it is the sermon text. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Um, things are a little crazy out there right now, aren't they? I almost felt like I didn't even need to say anything more about that um, than just that, because, I don't know, it's pretty obvious. We just came through, well, I mean, we're still kind of in um, pandemic uh, with COVID the, the last few years, and that disrupted our lives in more ways than we ever thought possible. The steady flow of bad news right now just seems to keep coming. And with the, I don't know, kind of renewed culture wars and um, the really heated political turmoil, I don't think any of that's dying down anytime soon. And we have, di we have different worldviews all around us that are kind of trying to push and pull all of us in different directions. And with all of that, we can feel kind of shaky. We can feel like our feet are on shifting, unstable ground. We can feel vulnerable and, and weak in our faith. And at least in America, um, in the past few years, we've seen, even at a greater rate than before, the rise of the nuns, which unfortunately is not a 1980s cheesy B-horror movie, um, but the number of people who say that they are they check none on the box for religious affiliation they're not they don't really care about religion at all to say anything none 
There's more and more people not going to church. And I probably pretty much all of us can say that we know somebody who grew up in the faith and walked away for not walking with Jesus right now. Maybe that's happened recently. Maybe you're feeling a little shaky yourself this morning. Maybe the bad news has started to corrode your ability to hear the good news. Maybe the hate and the sin of people that profess the name of Jesus out there. Seen a lot of news like that recently, haven't we? Maybe that bad news of of people doing bad things in the name of Jesus has started to infect your own view of Jesus. Maybe your own struggles with sin have invited so much destruction and shame into your life that you aren't even sure if the faith that you have left is worth the fight. Or maybe you've started explicitly or implicitly believing in one of these other worldviews, so in, in, in one of these ways that subtly were drawn out of the truths of the gospel. Or maybe you haven't been struggling necessarily so much with sin as with the effects of sin and with brokenness. Maybe anxiety and depression have seemed like close roommates, bedfellows to you, and Jesus is, you know, just somewhere out there on the street, getting harder and harder to hear. Or maybe even if you haven't left or have thought of leaving the church or Jesus, maybe you've checked out a little bit. Or you're tempted to check out of this whole Jesus thing. It's kind of natural when all of these things happen out in the world, all that we've been through the past few years, to feel like we're in this place of being shaky, unstable, that everything's just kind of, kind of tentative. Feeling like the ground that we used to find so solid that we never questioned before, is now shifting to feel pushed and pulled in many different directions and to feel like everything is just kind of up for grabs. You don't know where you're going to be tomorrow. We feel shaky from, from being battered by our sin in the circumstances in the world and so were the Colossians in the passage that was just read and that we're going to talk about today. We'll, we'll dive into the details in a second, but the Colossians were being pushed and pulled in at least a few different directions that we know about. It was a very volatile time. Paul was writing this letter from prison. And he's saying, hey, you guys, you have a good track record. You've been faithful. In the part before our passage, he actually says they have a firm, they've had a firm faith. And overall, Paul's happy with where they've been at. But he does have concerns that he shares here. Their firm faith was starting to look like it might be in danger. It might feel a little shaky. And although scholars argue over exactly what the issue that's going on in Colossians, it, just, it does look kind of weird. We'll look at, we'll look at, that, look at that in a second. Um, but it looks like there's at least two different groups trying to pull the Colossians away from Jesus. The Colossians knew people in prison. They probably had friends that had already walked away from Jesus, maybe going to one of these different groups that Paul is talking about here. And some of them had, may have been convinced by some of these groups so much that it actually kind of, you know, they didn't leave, but it infected their view of Jesus and the gospel so much that it radically changed their behavior um, that we see directly after this passage 
And so they're, they, have, they have this kind of like syncretistic, mixed up religion. And so all of this could serve to make the Colossians feel really unstable, off kilter. Am I next? Is my friend next? My family next? So as we're reading this, we're going to see Paul writing in the inspiration of the Spirit, under the superintending work of the Spirit, point to something to hold these shaky, unstable people, vulnerable people. Look with me at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, so there's that kind of tree imagery, see that in the Psalms a lot, and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is kind of Paul's thesis statement, his big idea for the passage we're talking about today. Just as you received back then in the past, so walk in it now. In verse 8, Paul's going to tell us not to be taken captive by human tradition. And that was the message of the Protestant Reformation, wasn't it? That we need to go back. We can't, we can't rely just on human tradition if it's not grounded in anything real and stable. They had a, a Latin slogan. It was ad fontes, which meant back to the fountains, back to the founts, or back to the sources, which for them went, meant that they went back to the word of God and didn't just rely on tradition when it departed from the word of God. Human tradition for the Colossians just as we saw in the Reformation, had muddled the waters of the gospel and they needed to go back to what they first received. Paul's saying to go back to where your faith started. Go back with the gospel and live like it. Grow up into maturity. But there's something that's threatening that. Look at me at verse 8. See to it, and some translations have consider here, but it actually it's literally see. Like, be on the lookout. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty Deceit. So philosophy there in this passage actually has a definite article, the, attached to it. So the philosophy. There, there might have been one of these groups that was trying to convince the Colossians to depart from the truth of the gospel. And they were calling themselves the philosophy. So it's kind of like, um, you know, Ohio State, if you're familiar with it, college football at all. Ohio State fans, <clears throat> like myself, like to call it the Ohio State University. We are the Ohio State University. OH. Oh, thanks. You're not even a fan, but that's fine. Um, and he's saying they're calling themselves the philosophy. Don't be taken captive by that. Don't be taken captive by them. That's a word that's also used for plunder. Like when pirates would capture, you know, the booty from the ships and they would take things off off, off of the ships. That would be, they would be taken, ca taken captive. It's also used for um, cases of seduction or fraud. And that's why he calls it, right after that, empty deceit. They're, they're defrauding you. They are promising you what they cannot actually bring you. They are making promises their worldview can't provide. According to human tradition... According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So the elemental spirits of the world, it's a weird thing. Nobody's 100% sure what it means. Um, it could be understood, and I, I think this is 
I think this is most likely the case. It could be understood as um, meaning the ABCs of the world. So, so it either means the principles, the basic principles, the, the foundational elements of the world, the building blocks of the world. The best guess from all the clues that Paul gives us is that this referred to pagan religions that surrounded the Colossians that worshipped some of the basic elements of the world, whether that be, you know, like a sun god or, or you know, a, a, a god of farming or fields or trees or something like that, or very, even more possibly that it was some sort of astral religion, like they were worshipping the stars and, and believed that the stars and the, these basic elements of the universe had some sort of a power over them, that they, had, they, were, they were deities, they had power over them, and that for whatever reason, we see after verse 15 in the rest of chapter 2, Paul mentions ascetism, asceticism sorry, and severity to the body. And all of these ways that they were trying to like beat their bodies to somehow obey or please or worship these deities, these elemental spirits, these basic building blocks of the world. And at that moment, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, oh, so the Big Dipper is telling you to starve yourself. That's dumb. Right? That's dumb. That's probably what we're all thinking here. But I'm, I'm reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis has an introduction to, um, I think it's On the Incarnation, um, a work of, of classical theology, early Christian theology, where he writes that we should let the clean sea breeze of the centuries blow through us in reading old books. We should encounter old things. We should encounter old ideas so that we can not just rely on the echo chamber of our own time. And so I think the way that applies here is that we don't have like a chronological snobbery, it's sometimes been called, or we have a sort of chronological humility where we acknowledge that we believe weird things too. I mean, we believe in a world, or we... we live in a world where many people, many of our neighbors, many of our friends, possibly some people here, and I'm really not trying to make fun of this view, right? But we live in a world where we hold at the same time, in one hand, we hold that the world was not made by a creator. It was, it was you know, everything that is is a, is a product of um, completely naturalistic processes. We are just the process of an not not in, in any way superintended Darwinian evolution that we're, we're evolved and we there's no deity or anything watching over that so we hold that everything we are is reducible to biology and yet we also believe in human rights we have very deep convictions about what's good and what's true and what's beautiful and what, what, what we should be doing about justice. And we hold these things at the same time, even though they seem completely contradictory to each other. This isn't new. And it's also not new. We might say, even say, because I, I don't want to just point a finger out there, right? We might say, oh, well, yeah, but isn't it crazy? Isn't it so stupid that these Christians were 
being taken captive by this, that they were somehow, at least for some of them, convinced of this message that was being given to them about the elemental spirits. Isn't that silly that they were trying to combine that with, with Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. But think of how many things that we hold or that and all of the behaviors, maybe all of the, some of the sins, maybe some of the beliefs that we hold that aren't lining up with the gospel. I don't even think I have to name a lot of them, but there's, there's so many ways that we live and we believe and we practice life that aren't, they don't always line up with the gospel. And we have blind spots too, and we probably don't even know all those ways. I couldn't even name all those ways, I don't think. I'm sure there will be Christians, you know, if Jesus doesn't come back hundreds or thousands of years from now, that look back at Sam and say, man, how did he, how did he line these things up? You know, So I, I think we need to acknowledge that we are, they are human just as we are, and we also have ways that we are buying into other worldviews, that we're being pushed and pulled, and that we're feeling vulnerable and shaky to these other beliefs just as they are. Let's look at verse 9. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Colossians is probably the, it's probably the most explicit place to find the belief about the deity, the godness of Jesus in the whole Bible. I mean, we, we have, there's, there is a lot in John, right? But in Colossians, Paul is being very clear as to they are not God, right? The elemental spirits of the world are not God. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In the first chapter in Colossians, there's that verse about Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So Paul might have been arguing with one of these philosophies that was arguing that they should be filled. That maybe you're not filled. You're not filled here. You're not, you're not filled with the gospel. You've got to go somewhere else. You've got to, yeah, yeah, there's Jesus, but you're not full with Jesus. You need something else. But Paul was arguing that you don't need any other filling. Jesus is filled with the whole divine nature. Jesus is fully God. And, this is a crazy thing, you have been filled with Jesus. So Jesus is filled with God. You are filled with Jesus by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you don't need any other filling from the elements or wherever else. Let's look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of. This also means getting closer to the idea of the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in circumcision, I'm not going to get too graphic here, but flesh is removed. In circumcision, flesh is removed. And this is talking, this is Paul using that imagery, very visceral graphic imagery, to say... Jesus, spiritually, is removing your body of sin. He's removing the flesh. Scripture makes this connect, connection between the flesh and sin. Not that this is sin, that my body in itself is sinful, but it makes a comparison between the flesh and sin. And he's saying Jesus removes that. He removes that flesh from you in this spiritual circumcision, which is... What? It's baptism. If 
I didn't say this before, if this wasn't clear by the, everything that's been done in worship today, this is a sermon about baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. And I'm making a much bigger point here um, in this sermon, but I do want to just take a little aside today, because I did just baptize a baby, which was great, that this is, I think, a, an underlying point to what we believe about baptism and why we baptize babies. So this is just an aside, but I do want to talk about this for a second. We love our credo Baptist people, believe, people that believe that you should only be baptized if you can profess faith in the gospel. Um, we love credo Baptist brothers and sisters. There's some of you sitting here probably um, that believe that or aren't sure what you believe with that. Um, so I, I want to make clear this is not a core thing. We love you as brothers and sisters. But I do want to talk about this a little bit because it's an important thing. So very short, not full argument for infant baptism from this. This text connects circumcision with baptism. So verse 11 says that you had a spiritual circumcision by Christ. And grammatically, these are in the same tense. That is the same. It's connecting it with baptism as the same action. So the action that is the spiritual circumcision is the baptism. Circumcision in the Old Covenant was the entrance. It was the door to God's covenant community. And so when you were circumcised, that meant that you were a part of God's people. You were a child of the promise. And as kids of God's believers were included in the Old Covenant by this rite of circumcision, they are included in the New Covenant by the rite of baptism. Let me put that another way. Kids were included in the Old Covenant. Kids were included in God's covenant people in the Old Testament. We know that for sure, 100%. I'd also argue that God's kids, God's belie- the believers of God, their children were included in the covenant in the early church. Infants were baptized in the early church. I was actually looking up because um, if, you, if you noticed, uh, Jay and Nicole had a shell used for Henry's baptism. I was trying to look up like when that started and I was looking up old um, images that were drawn in the catacombs um, by, by early, early Christians um, to try to find when the, when the first, you know, when, when we first start to see these shell baptisms, you know, at least. And I, I, I think what we narrowed it down to is somewhere between 200 and 250. There's, a, there's, a, there's an image that looks like someone's um, baptizing uh, a very young child with uh, either a bowl or a shell. That's just a random, random free fact for you. Um, but as I was looking at these, I was just impressed by the number of pictures there were in the early, early church of little kids, very little kids, toddlers being baptized. And we have early writers baptizing kids. So er, early Christian writers talking about the church baptizing kids. And so Old Covenant... Kids are included. Early church, kids are included. So my very short argument to you this morning is that if you're going to say they're not included in the New Covenant, then you're going to have to make an argument to me from the New Testament as to where they are excluded. Does that make sense? All right. That's all I'll say. If you want to talk about it more, we can. But um, God's 
the, the connection here is between circumcision and baptism as the entrance into the covenant community in the new covenant. And so my bigger point here, that was an aside, right? My bigger point here is that when Paul reaches for something, there's these shaky people out here. They're off kilter. They're unstable. They're, he's, he's kind of worried. He's looking at the future. He's seeing all these groups coming in, trying to push and pull them apart. And when Paul reaches for something to try to stabilize for them, what he reaches for is baptism. And I don't think we lend credence enough to, or we, we don't give enough weight to our baptisms. But that's what Paul reaches for when he wants to throw something to them to help them to be a little bit more stable and secure in their faith. So here's what he says. Baptism, in baptism, you are buried with Christ. So you are united to Christ by faith through the Holy Spirit. You are united with Christ in baptism into Jesus' death. So he's saying the same thing, really, as he's saying with the spiritual circumcision. That's another reason why I think he's equating those two here. It's because he's saying in spiritual circumcision, Jesus is taking off the body, right? The body of sin. And in baptism, in the actual act of baptism, you are buried. You are buried. Your old man is buried. Your old woman, your old self is buried with Christ. Your flesh is buried with Christ. Your sinful self died with Jesus. That which is making you tentative, shaky, unstable, off-kilter, died with Jesus. That's what I'm going to argue. That might not make as much sense right now, but that's what I'm going to argue. There's no need for asceticism. There's no need for you to make your own acts of severity to the body and putting off the body. Jesus did that already. Severity to the body? You've, You've been buried, my guy. You don't need to hurt yourself. You don't need to... Practice all of these extreme forms of of asceticism that some of these groups were telling you you needed to. There might have been Jewish groups that were telling them, either Judaizers or or actual um, Jews who were trying to get some proselytes from the church and, and poach some of their Gentile converts were coming along afterward and maybe saying, you need to be circumcised. That was a big thing in the church. But Paul is saying, you've had a truer circumcision than any of them have had because you have been circumcised by Christ and you've been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also, following along here, in which you were also, meaning by the same thing in baptism, raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So if you have faith... In the gospel and in Jesus' resurrection, you are raised with him. If you have faith in Jesus' resurrection, you share in his resurrection to new life, to new self, to new reality. In verse 13, we see, And you, who are dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. So this is talking about baptism being applied to you in faith. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And these were that, rulers and authorities, that's probably a reference back to either the elements that he mentioned before or Satan and demonic forces. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So how does Jesus accomplish this forgiveness and what does it mean? This is what he's answering here. So it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, the elements. 
Possibly also sin, death, and Satan. What were, they ar- what, 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 were they, what were they armed with here? And the logic of Paul is that their biggest weapon against us, the biggest weapon that all of these things have, whether it's the world trying to get at us by the, the brokenness that we see all around us, the effects of sin, or directly to you to pull you away from Jesus by your sin, is your own sin. That's the weapon that they have, is your, your own sin. Sin, your own sin, and the original sin that infects all of our, our lives, all of our, and, and, and pours brokenness into every part of our society. Sin is the weapon that the world and Satan and the grave and idols like the elements have over you. The, ra- the ramifications of Adam's original sin and brokenness is the only reason for your shakiness. And so the threat to you here is sin, human wickedness. I, I watched a show, it was like a comedy show, and they were playing a game. The characters were, they, they had this game that they had all been used to playing um, that they kind of invented. But one of the funniest things that I remember about this game is that whoever, so they played with these like character pieces. They were kind of like action figures that they'd kind of modified themselves. And they'd use these um, action figures as game pieces to play the game. And at the end, what they did, the winners got to take the game pieces of the losers and just beat the mess out of them. Like stomp them on the ground and spit on them and throw them. And so by the end, you could tell, um, you know, and especially after they played this game enough, who, who were the winners and who were the losers by how messed up the game pieces were? And that's kind of what's happening here. This is odd language um, in verse 14, but I, I think for, from, I did a really deep dive on this word for canceling because what this verse is saying is that the record of debt, the, the, the word for record there is actually like handwritten note or hand, handwritten record. It's very clear. It's something that was written by hand. And it was a record of law breaking. This is referring to the law. So he's saying there's a, there's a paper or uh, a papyrus, right, that was written and has your sins all that can be held against you, all of your law-breaking on it. And so the word there for cancel, it, it, I'm not saying that's a wrong translation because there are like legal components of this, like canceling you know, a legal judgment or a charge against you. But what the word actually means is blotted out, wiped out, wiped clean. This was a, a technical term for wiping a sheet of papyrus. So um, papyri, am I I saying that right? Can somebody correct me if I'm saying that wrong? Papyri? Okay, all right. Then you guys can't yell at me if I'm saying it wrong. But um, they would take, and this isn't an actual one, this is just one we used for VBS a couple years ago, but they would take sheets of papyrus, and when they wanted to clean them, 
they would have to either scratch them out with a stone or you could completely wash them in water because um, I guess in papyrus, like with the surface of a sheet of papyrus, it's not completely permeable. So it can be washed or scratched out. And so the language that he's using here when he's saying, it was wiped out, your, your sins, the list of your sins were wiped out on this paper, on this papyrus, and what Jesus is doing is he's washing them. I'd argue that this could be the imagery of baptism. Jesus is washing away our sins. He's washing it away. But it doesn't just say that. It doesn't just say Jesus is he's taking the paper and he's, he's rinsing it in the water and he's rubbing it out. He's rubbing your sins out of the paper. It also says he took it aside and he nailed it to the cross. And there's just this emphasis here, I think, similar to with the game pieces. If you won the game, there's this emphasis here that he is rubbing it in their faces. And Jesus is just taking this sheet that has all of your sins on it, written on it, and he's washing washing it and he's scrubbing it off and he's throwing it on the ground and he's stomping on it. And in doing that, he's triumphing over them in him. That's a language, that kind of language triumphing over, over them um, is kind of a reference to in this period in the Roman Empire when the army who won a battle really far off, he won the battle, it was, it was far away so the people back home didn't see that. So they took the plunder, kind of referencing back to earlier in our, in our passage, right? They took the plunder, and they brought it back, and they marched it all around the city for everybody to see. That's what Jesus is doing here. You thought you'd take them. You thought you'd take them captive. You thought that you'd plunder them. But I'm taking you, Jesus says, and I'm marching you. Sin, death, Satan elements, whatever else, I'm taking you and I'm going to march you in front of my people. I'm going to triumph over you in front of them. How do people access that? How do we access that victory over the elements? We access it, and I know I'm being a little cute here, we access it by the element of water. In baptism. That's what baptism does. And that's why Paul brings it up. They need to be reminded that they are not subject to, they are not victims of the pagan elements or all of these worldviews, all of their circumstances. They've been given victory over that element in the water of baptism. They don't need to go back to an attempt to be saved by the works of the law in circumcision. They've been given a circumcision by Jesus himself in baptism. They don't need to beat their bodies. They were buried with Christ in baptism. They don't need to be filled or satisfied or fulfilled in anything else. They were filled with God in Christ in baptism. The old Adam drowned that's the, Martin Luther actually has a, has a quote about this where he talks about in baptism, you are drowning the old self. You are, the, Jesus is drowning, really, the old self. But it's kind of like still alive. It's like a living dead kind of thing, like a zombie kind of thing, um, if you don't get too offended by that imagery, that there's a zombie you, there's a living dead. Your old self, even though it's drowned in baptism, still raises back to the water, and it will come back up. And we still live in a world, right, where there's all of this bad news. Your baptism isn't going to stop the bad news from, from happening right now. 
So, but what's the answer to our shakiness of our faith that's the result of that? What's the answer to the pushing and pulling of our faith? We remember our baptism. You remember how I said ad fontes before? That was the Protestant Reformation slogan. It meant back to the fount. And they took that to mean, you know, back to the sources, back to the text, back to the word of God. And I think that's what we should also mean. But we can also say literally back to the baptismal fount. Look back to the baptismal fount. Martin Luther says, baptism signifies that the old Adam in us is to be drowned by daily sorrow and repentance and perish with all evil lusts and sins, and that the new man should daily come forth again and again and rise, who shall live forever in righteousness and purity. When, he, when that old man comes back up, and again, forgive me, graphic imagery, but we re, when we remember our baptism... We stick that old Adam's head back in the water. And that's why Martin Luther, whenever his conscience was pricked or whenever he was tempted, he yelled to himself, and I know you've heard this before probably, a sermon or something, but he yelled to himself, I am baptized. I am baptized. And he constantly reminded people that he was preaching to and writing to to remember their baptism. Read one more quote from Luther. For this reason, we must hold boldly and fearlessly to our baptism and hold it up against all sins and terrors of conscience and humbly say, I know full well that I don't have a single work that's pure, but I am baptized and through my baptism, baptism God who cannot lie has bound himself in covenant with me not to count my sin against me, but to slay it out, to blot it out. To blot it out. Just like in our passage. One way um, that we're pushed and pulled in this world is on the level of identity. Everybody wants us, wants us to be something. Everybody wants to tell us who we are, what our identity should be. And the entirety of our society is aimed at getting us to kind of create that for ourselves. We forge our own identities. We're pushed and pulled. But one application of this is that Baptism is who you are. Who you are is located in that water. Remembering your baptism means remembering that you have been baptized. You are a baptized person. You were and you are washed. This is easy for some of us. Some of us have been baptized as either adults or, you know, really old kids or teenagers or something like that. And we're able to actually remember this. So when, when people say remember your baptism, it's a little bit easier to at least bring that memory up, I guess. And that's good. I would love, I, I love adult baptisms. That means, especially in, in, in this church um, or in Reformed churches, that there are people that are unchurched and didn't grow up in the church that are coming to belief in Jesus. And I would love to see that for us. I would love to see some adult baptisms at Grace and Peace in the coming years. Amen? Amen. Let's share that good news with our friends. But many of us were baptized as babies. I was baptized as a baby. We just baptized a baby. So what does it mean to remember your baptism when literally remembering your baptism would be the same as, you know, remember, remember that baby food that you were eating or, you know, remember when your parents changed your diapers or something like that, right? It's obvious for some, but it's not for people who were baptized as infants. And so I, I think that's been, that was hard for me 
personally um, at some points, at, you know, in part of my life because I didn't believe in infant baptism, but in part of my life just because it's like it was really, it didn't mean a lot, right? It didn't seem like it meant a lot. But I, I want to ask the question, how on brand is it for the gospel for us to baptize babies, for God to be working before we were even able to utter a word in worship or in faith or belief to him. In this passage, it says, we were dead before our baptism. And God is showing his loving care for us before we could even have the kind of faith that saves. Remembering your baptism is an invitation to look back on all those times in your life and try to call to mind all those times in your life where God was working behind the scenes and you had no idea and you had no way to respond to him in faith in that moment in any real way. I remember sitting in church that I was sitting in the church I was baptized in and hating it. Didn't care about it. Was bored with the whole thing. And I remember God sustaining me in all of these little ways through himself directly in different ways, but then also through his covenant community. I remember sitting in church, bored, and my grandma would pass me these little lifesaver mints, right? That was God sustaining me, caring for me before I could even respond to him, before I was able to, or maybe I was able to, and I just didn't, and I didn't believe, and I was obstinate, as I was for much of my life. But looking back, I can see before I believed, before I had the words, before I had the faith, God was there. Himself directly and in his covenant community. There's a, um, in the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, there's a concept, a theological concept called prevenient grace. And we wouldn't believe, and we shouldn't believe all of the things that that entails, um, for them, <clears throat> but I think we should have an appreciation for that idea that God's grace is also, even if it's not saving in that moment, it's prevenient, it's going before. There's a grace of God, there's a care of God, there's an action of God in your life before you could believe by faith. There's a going before grace. Remember that. Remember that you are his. Remember that God loves you. Remember that he loved you before you could love him. And before you knew your own name, he decided to mark you with his. But it won't always just be a memory of this entrance into God's family that you have to forcefully recall. That word that we talked about for canceled, that I, that I said really means wiped away, blotted out, it's only used a few times, I think four or five in the New Testament. But you'll recognize the last time it's used. He will wipe out. He will wipe away. He will blot out every tear from your eyes. And there will be no mourning, pain anymore. With the same hand that he wipes your sins out. That he stomps on them. That he beats them. That he beats the mess out of all of your sins. With the same hands, he wipes away your sins. He wipes away your tears. He will wipe away your tears. Finally and forever. That's our hope. And that's the truth that can hold us fast when we feel shaky.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for the imagery of baptism and the truth of baptism and and what it does for us, God. It's hard for us to remember. We're not people that are naturally good at remembering. We like to keep on moving, but we need to, God. I pray that we would remember that we are baptized and that we are marked by your name. We are not our own, but we can walk in the newness of life that you give to us because we have been buried with you in baptism and we were also raised up with you when we believed in the resurrection of Christ. We will also be raised and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Remind us of that this week, Lord. Amen.